Today on Blue 58, we finish off our NFL Draft Preview with a look at the wide receivers in this year's class that could be a fit for what the Packers are looking for. Does it align with their needs, and when should they take one, if at all? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. A little bit late, but that's okay. Thank you for your patience. I think it's going to be worth it to talk about wide receivers in some depth today. I would like to do this a little bit differently than we've done the past few position previews. I want to talk about only the guys that primarily are going to fit what the Packers have looked at historically or look for historically at the wide wide receiver position. Because as with many of the other positions that we've looked at, the Packers have some pretty well-defined archetypes here. It doesn't really pay to look outside of those restrictions, I guess we can call them, because you're probably going to be disappointed. The Packers have some things that they're looking for in terms of height and weight and athleticism. And when they've strayed from that, it hasn't worked out particularly well. Amari Rogers being probably the most notable example of things not going particularly well when the Packers stray from what they have tended to do at the receiver position. There is a problem with this approach, both for me and for the Packers, because I think the Packers need to consider making some exceptions, both this year and going forward. And this is a bit of a hobby horse for me, and has been for some time, but the Packers, I think, are obligated to make some exceptions to their height, weight, speed, sort of thresholds, I guess, restrictions, rules, whatever way you want to describe it, for a couple of reasons. And we've made some form of this argument since probably 2018, when the Packers triple-dipped at wide receiver that year. But I, I, I think they need to vary things a little bit for a couple of reasons. First, it expands your pool of draftable players. I mean, you're looking at just uh, from a numbers perspective, more chances to find good receivers if there are more receivers that you are willing to take. You're just considering more possible guys out there. But secondly, and perhaps more practically, and I, I don't have a, a ton of like hard and fast data on this, more my personal feeling, but I think it makes you a lot easier to defend when most of your guys are kind of the same. The Packers would say that the idea is that you can run the same look a bunch of different times and have a bunch of different plays out of it. Yes, that is true. If you have all your guys on the field who are a certain size, you can run block a certain way and do a whole bunch of of interesting things with your formations rather than just personnel. I think that is true. However, you also, I think, end up defending almost every receiver the same way. You don't have to account for differences just between body types and what guys can do on the field because there aren't differences on the field. So I think there are some negative aspects to having all of a similar kind of dude out on the field all the time. And on top of that, like we started with, it limits your pool of guys that you can pull from. The problem that I have from an evaluation standpoint is finding the exceptions that actually make sense makes it makes it hard. It's hard to find the guys that you say, okay, here's why we should be making an exception. Bill Parcells, in an oft-quoted line, warned against that very idea of trying to find exceptions because he said, 
as soon as you start trying to make exceptions for guys, pretty soon you have a whole team made up, of it, made up out of exceptions. And I think for as many problems as there are building a draft philosophy around sayings or almost folk wisdom or things like that, the point there I think is a solid one. Because if you start making too many exceptions, pretty soon you don't actually have a roster building philosophy. You just got a bunch of guys. And to be fair, if you hit on enough of those guys, you end up with a pretty good roster anyway. But I think Parcell's point is, if you're trying to be a certain kind of team and you keep making exceptions to the philosophy that's going to get you to being that kind of team, you're never going to get there. You're never going to become the team that you are trying to be if you're constantly making exceptions along the way. In addition to all of that, as it pertains to this year in particular, there just are not that many guys for whom I think you would really want to make an exception this year because this is not the strongest wide receiver class I've ever seen. And that seems to be the consensus take that there are just not a whole ton of top end guys in this class. Now, I think as we look at this, we will find some guys, especially through the latter parts of day two and into day three, that are really interesting in terms of just some of the threshold related stuff that they do that the Packers could be interested in. However, the top end talent, the guys that the Packers could theoretically have been interested in taking at, you know, say 15, is just not that great. And you're not going to get, say, a chance at a Justin Jefferson going in the early 20s, or even, you know, looking at how he was considered heading into that 2020 draft, a guy like Jalen Rager, who I think went 21, somewhere in there, the early 19 to 21 range. You're not getting that second tier of receivers beyond the super duper studs at the top because the super duper studs at the top would probably be one of those second tier or top you know top of tier three guys in a different draft class but this year they end up being the top guys off the board and you start talking about the top guys the top receivers coming off the board in like the 10 to 15 range anyway that's not a super strong receiver class So we'll start just talking about the guys who are going to hit what the Packers are looking for. We'll look for guys that are six feet tall, 200 pounds, could even say about 205 pounds if you really want to narrow down your range here, with a relative athletic score of eight or better. I don't really care about the productivity so much. I think the college game is such that guys are probably going to be able to produce in the NFL if you are worth drafting in the NFL, into the NFL anyway. And in terms of the Packers parameters, Things are so strict anyway, if you start restricting it beyond guys or down to guys who really produced at an elite level in college, we're going to have nobody to talk about anyway. So we're going to focus just on the guys that meet what the Packers historically have looked for and then sprinkle in a few guys that I think are worth making exceptions for. So we're going to start with the guys who hit everything using the same parameters we've talked about before. We'll talk in depth about the guys that could go in the top 100 or so, as well as some other interesting prospects that fall between 100 and 200 on the consensus mock draft board. And then we'll get to some exceptions there at the end. So among guys in the top two, top 100 on the consensus mock draft board, we start with Quentin Johnson. The Texas Christian University product is currently 19th on the consensus draft big board. A pretty solid height, weight, speed prospect uh, to begin with. Johnson just a shade under six foot three, two hundred and eight pounds, an overall relative athletic score of eight point six eight, very, very solid there. Runs the forty yard dash in a good but not great four point five two seconds. I think anything under about four five five is probably acceptable. 
I think it's kind of diminishing returns at that point, though you you would take the guy who runs the 4-3-5 over the guy who runs the 4-5, but I think you understand what we're going for here. You know, at a certain point, you have enough functional speed to be an NFL receiver. Johnson appears to at least hit that threshold. He's coming, Johnson's coming out after his true junior year, has pretty much always been a contributor at TCU, generated a lot of attention at the conference level, not a whole lot nationally, such as life in the Big 12 in 2022, I guess. Great physical tools for Johnston. The size and weight combo, essentially unmatched in this class. Uh, Jonathan Mingo, who we'll talk about a little bit later on, is is probably your next closest guy, maybe Cedric Tillman. Neither of those guys cracked the top 50 on the consensus mock draft board. So among the top-end talent, among guys who could feasibly be first-round picks, if you're looking for a big receiver, you got Quentin Johnston. That's, that is the list. That's pretty much all you've got beyond that. Uh, beyond that, it's just smaller guys. Just about everything you read about him, unfortunately, describes him as a little bit unrefined. The phrase one speed comes up a lot, as though he, you know, he doesn't really vary his routes, can't get a lot of interesting movement into his route running because he's just going to go one speed all the time. Dane Brugler in The Beast for the athletics, as there are a lot of focus drops in his write-up. Uh, according to Pro Football Focus, Johnson had an 11.8% drop rate this year, which is not not great. A lot of these guys that we're going to be talking about, I don't have the numbers or I haven't bothered to enter in the numbers for each of them specifically, but most of them are in like the 5 to 8% range. Drops, are, I think, are a little bit overrated in terms of a knock on guys, but it's a data point here. And this is something that comes up in a lot of different write-ups on Johnston. I probably wouldn't be overly excited about him at 15. Again, as we've talked about, the guys that are being discussed as those mid-first-round picks this year are not, would not be at this point in many of the recent draft class that we've seen. And Johnston, it seems like, has more warts than you would really want for a guy who you might be taking 15th overall. I'm not super excited there. Fun fact about Johnston, both his parents are military veterans. Both of them served overseas in different capacities in various points of the 1990s. Dropping all the way down to number 66 on the consensus mock draft big board, we find Cedric Tillman out of Tennessee. Tillman, like we said, similar, bigger-bodied receiver, uh, just over 6'3", 213 pounds, ran a 4.540, has an overall relative athletic score of 8.67. Tillman played almost exclusively on the outside at Tennessee. I think he's pretty much just a traits projection, though he was very productive at Tennessee. Tallied 24 catches of 20 or more yards, 12 catches of 30 or more yards, and 10 catches of 40 or more yards, according to his official Tennessee bio. Had 600-yard receiving games, tied for eighth in University of Tennessee history. Tennessee's offense is kind of funky, and we are going to mention Jalen Hyatt at some point in here for numerous reasons, but Tennessee runs kind of stuff from the old Baylor tree. Their receivers run a lot of choice routes, which is basically deciding where you're going to run based on the defense's alignment and their actions post-snap. You're just looking at what the defense is doing and running to where they aren't. It worked pretty well for Tillman. He was plenty productive over his five-year career at Tennessee, but that doesn't necessarily make him an easy projection into the NFL. It's tough to know what to do with these Tennessee guys, but Tillman seems like he's a a pretty solid prospect, at least physically. 
I think I would probably be more excited about his teammate, but we'll talk about Hyatt here in a second. Uh, Tillman, for a fun fact, finished his undergraduate degree in communication studies in December 2021, played an entire season of college football after graduating, and maybe it's just some personal bias on my part, but whatever your degree is, I still like seeing guys who finish up their, their college studies before they actually graduate, just put in a little bit of extra time. And I know that, you know, the academic load for a football player is perhaps a little bit different from a traditional undergraduate student at a university. I understand all that. It still takes some doing to get it done. Tillman got it done, stuck around, played another year of college football. Good work for him. Solid stuff there. Rasheed Rice out of SMU at number 73 is the first guy I start to get a little bit excited about. Six feet tall and a half inch. 4-5-1, 40-yard dash, 204 pounds. So clears just about everything we're looking for. 8-5-3 overall relative athletic score. Rice is a true senior who le- leaves Southern Methodist University as one of their most decorated receivers ever. He is their career leader in receiving yards. Actually led the country in yards per game as a senior. Appeared in 44 games over four seasons. Has always just been a big part of what SMU is doing. Showed up, started right away. Has always had a pretty significant role. Rice, to me, strikes me as the kind of guy that people are going to overthink for a few reasons. He has good but not exceptional athleticism. His 40-yard dash time, again, just 4-5-1, which is fast enough. But, and we've seen numerous receivers succeed at that speed, but it's, it's not game-breaking speed. It's not a low 4-4s. It's not a 4-3. It's merely a 4-5-1. He had good pro- productivity in college, but not at a big or super notable school. Southern Methodist, while one of my favorite schools to watch historically, going back to the NCAA football games on, on Xbox or whatever you played, historically one of my favorite schools to play with. Just loved the logo, loved the uniforms, loved everything about them. I think we can all agree they are not consistently thought of as a national powerhouse. Yet when you read about Rice, you see the size you see everything he does. He really profiles as a guy who's going to come in and do a bunch of really solid stuff. He's done a lot of stuff in the slot, had 317 snaps there in 2021. Just about everything you read about him talks about his run blocking. I mean, what am I missing here? This sounds like the sort of player that the Packers are going to be interested in. Yes, he's a little bit shorter than guys that they've drafted in the past. Not by all that much, though, and still seems like he's got He's plenty big in terms of the weight he carries. He can run well enough at the speed. It seems like he can fit into their offense and do the things that he needs to do to succeed in the NFL. And it seems like he has a broad and varied skill set as well. I love the fun fact that I dug up. This comes from Dane Brugler in his great uh, NFL, you know, in the beast. Uh, I really just relate to this as a dad. See if you are, if you're a father or a parent out there, understand where I'm coming from. Brugler writes, at age six, Rice's father put him in football pads because Rice kept jumping off his bike. I it just, I understand. I know where he's coming from. One of my kids thinks the appropriate way to get off the couch is to stand up and just walk off the edge. And then she'll just get up after she hits the floor. Wherever she happens to have hit the floor, whatever happens to have been underneath her, just shake it off and go. She needs to be in football pads. It just, I understand. I understand where you're coming from, Rasheed Rice's dad. The other guy that I would consider myself really excited about comes to us at at number 86 on the consensus mock draft big board. Jonathan Mingo out of Mississippi. 
Mingo is six foot one, nearly six foot two, 220 pounds, ran a 4.46 40-yard dash on the way to a overall relative athletic score of 9.51. He is a true senior who's played a pretty big role at Mississippi ever since he arrived, appeared in double-digit games every year except for 2021, and a stress fracture that year limited him to six games, which required it required surgery to fix. The surgery didn't take. So he needed a, a second surgery to fix that problem. If you're looking for medical red flags, that is a significant one for Mingo. However, I think this is the guy in this draft class I am most intrigued by. If you're looking purely for those guys that meet what the Packers are looking for, Mingo is it. Thickly built at 6'1", solid athleticism, not solid, exceptional athleticism. He's got positional flexibility. We've talked about Rasheed Rice doing some some different things, you know, moving all over the formation. Mingo's got that too. 32% of his snaps came in the slot his final year in college. Another 130 snaps as an inline player dropping down, doing the insert blocking like Alan Lazard used to do. He's been asked to do it all, and he's done it all. I think getting that makes him a really tremendous fit with the Packers. Because when you start thinking about fit, I really think you need to consider carefully what the other Packers receivers do. Christian Watson is obviously a game-breaking piece for the Packers. He can do whatever you need to do, basically, you know, lining up outside and running past guys. You can put him in the slot and he'll run by guys from there, but that's going to be his game. He's going to play outside and he's going to going to run past guys and and be that deep threat. Romeo Dobbs, wherever Christian Watson lines up, you think Dobbs is probably going to be across the formation from that. While while Watson is attracting the mo- the bulk of the attention from you know opposing secondaries, Dobbs's job is going to be just to feel his way out and find soft spots from there. And I think that's where we saw him succeed the most last year, even if his overall season I think was was not great, though to be fair, fairly typical for like a fourth round pick coming from a bit of a difficult projection, playing in a, a very, very heavy like spread air raid offense in in college. Dobbs is going to struggle a little bit in the NFL. It was going to be a, a, a tough go for him, and, and he had some success, but it was also we saw some limitations there too. But getting him in a situation where he can just isolate against one guy at a time because of the attention elsewhere in your receiver room is going to be important. Then you want to find a guy who can kind of fit in between both of those players. If Watson is lined up on the outside, if Dobbs is across the formation there, There are slot reps to be had. A guy with slot versatility is going to be important. If you want to move Christian Watson into the slot, you need a guy who can play outside if you want to stick with your 11 personnel. Or if you want Watson and Dobbs on the same side, who can play on the other side of the formation split out by himself? You want a guy who can do that. Mingo can do all of those things. And I think Rasheed Rice is probably in that same kind of neighborhood as well. He's not exclusively a slot guy, but he can play in the slot. He's not exclusively an outside guy, but he's succeeded on the outside. He has the ability to to take advantage of whatever matchups he gets. And with Watson on the field, there are going to be matchups that you are going to be able to take advantage of. Exploiting those matchups is going to be important regardless of who's playing quarterback for the Packers. But it'll help a guy like Jordan Love a lot if you have guys who can win one-on-ones. And that's always been the problem, I think, other than Devontae Adams, dating back to when we've really started harping on this receiver stuff, 2018, even before then. But when the Packers really started needing receiver help, what they needed was another guy other than Devontae Adams who could win one-on-one. And unfortunately, it wasn't until after Adams left that you really found that guy who could consistently win one-on-one matchups by himself. It was Christian Watson. 
now we're kind of in the same boat. The Packers need another guy who can consistently win one-on-one when Christian Watson is taking attention away and, you know, centering it on himself for, for obvious reasons. Dobbs hasn't necessarily shown he can be that guy consistently, though, you know, getting more help at receiver would help him do that. Adding a guy who can be a matchup problem inside, outside, at different points across the formation is going to be important. I think Mingo is that sort of player. I think Rice is that kind of player. Mingo would be my first choice as of right now. Fun fact about Mingo as we return from that small tangent there, he self-describes as a mama's boy. And I've enjoyed reading about all the guys in this year's last class, Mingo included, who chose their colleges based on being close to their family. I like that. And if this NIL stuff gives guys a chance to do that and still be close to their families while finding a college situation that fits well for them, I think that's pretty cool. And uh, maybe it leads to stronger pros coming out. You never know. If guys get to be a little bit more well-rounded in college because they're more comfortable where they end up going to college, they don't feel like they just have to take the first scholarship or maybe only scholarship that they get because there's other ways that they can become a, a successful college football player. I think that's a net win for all of us because it probably leads to better college football too. Sliding down to number 92 on the consensus mock draft big board, we find A.T. Perry out of Wake Forest. I'm including this, uh, including Perry here, because he just misses the 200-pound the, the cutoff at 198 pounds, but he's, he's plenty tall, 6'3", 198 pounds, just a, a burrito shy of, of making the cutoff there. 44740 overall relative athletic score of 9.62. Redshirt junior, solid contributor throughout his time at Wake Forest. He's the school record holder with 28 career receiving touchdowns. He's the first and only player in Wake Forest history to score double digit receiving touchdowns in consecutive seasons. 15 in 2021, 11 in 2022. Pretty solid output over a two year span. I think when you look at Perry, You're looking at another Romeo Dobbs type player here, just a smooth college receiver who's probably going to succeed in the right NFL situation. May need a bit of time to find his feet, but once he does, I think he's going to be a dangerous sort of player. Uh, Again, capable of winning one-on-one type stuff, but may need a little bit of help too. May need a little bit of refining. Uh, Still a little bit on the lighter side, so may need, need some bulking up there. He was an elite high jumper and long jumper in high school. In the long jump, he had a personal best of 22 feet, 5 inches. And as impressive as that sounds, it still only got him fifth at state that year. Some other elite jumpers out there, uh, even more elite than a future NFL player. So those are the guys that fall in the top uh, 100. There's a few other guys we should consider here who fall between 100 and 200 before we extend out to a couple possible exceptions here. The first between 100 and 200 is Michael Wilson out of Stanford. He's number 114 on the consensus big board. Bigger-bodied receiver, pretty limited senior year. Stanford's quarterback situation wasn't great. Tanner McKee probably not the answer uh, for Stanford, but uh, the best they could do. The Packers have been looking at McKee for whatever it's worth, so... I don't know. Maybe they're looking to find out more information on a couple nice-sized Stanford receivers here. 18% of uh, the snaps that Wilson took his final year at Stanford did come in the slot. So if you're looking for a bigger slot receiver, uh, maybe that's somebody you might want to pay a little bit of attention to. He is 213 pounds and nearly six foot two. Next up is Xavier Hutchinson out of Iowa State at number 116 on the big board. Another big slot option. 
just good, not great athletic athleticism, 757 relative athletic score, 26% of his snaps come in the slot, but again, a bigger slot prospect, nearly 6'2", 203 pounds. Dontavian Wicks out of Virginia is next up at 156 on the big board. Good overall relative athletic score, but some concerns. Although his overall number is a 9.17, he does have a 4.62 in the 40-yard dash, had an elite start, elite burst in his first 10 yards, but slowed down considerably after that. Elite jumping numbers combined with just fair to middling agility numbers and good size does get you to that a 9-plus RAS. So the overall athletic package, pretty good. The speed and agility stuff, not super great. Almost exclusively an outside receiver. Uh, more than 90% of his snaps uh, came outside. Andre Ishiovas uh, out of Princeton, Princeton excuse me, is uh, 159th on the consensus mock draft big board there. The Ivy Leaguer, numbers are just about all there. Good athleticism across the board. 6'3", 205 pounds, 4'4", 40-yard dash. Three-time Ivy League champion in the heptathlon, 1920 and 2022. Uh, Three-time champion. What's in the heptathlon? I'm glad you ask. The men's heptathlon is indoor. Seven events, that's what makes it the heptathlon. The 60 meters, the long jump, the shot put, the high jump, the 60-meter hurdles, the pole vault, and the 1,000-meter run. There, now you know what happens in the men's heptathlon. This fellow is pretty solid athletically, not consistently dominant. He had 66 catches for 943 yards and seven touchdowns in 2022. However, 29 catches, 481 yards, and four touchdowns came in three games against Harvard, Cornell, and Lafayette. The rest, a fairly mixed bag from there, has never really faced big-time competition in college. He's going to be a little bit of a project, but the Ivy Leaguers are always a little bit fun to watch. You want a guy who is going to get drafted based on traits alone? I got one for you. Bryce Ford Wheaton out of West Virginia. You want traits? Bryce Ford Wheaton has traits for you. He is 6'3", a little bit more than 6'3 and a half, 221 pounds. He ran a 4'3", 840-yard dash, had a 41-inch vertical, broad jumped more than 10 feet, elite shuttle time, pretty good three-cone time, Numbers like that, somebody's going to get you, somebody's going to draft you, even if you didn't know that the pointy end of the football is the one that goes forward when you try to throw it. Don't try to throw it sideways. Don't try to shoot it like a basketball. You know what? Don't worry about that. You run so fast. You're so big. We're going to find a place for you on the football field. If Al Davis was still alive, I would say he's going to be an Oakland Raider for sure, but he's not, and they play in Las Vegas now, so maybe he'll end up in Green Bay playing special teams, or they'll try to make him into another version of Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Who knows? Grant DuBose out of Charlotte at number 181 really rounds out the guys that are, you know, in that top 200 that really fit what the Packers are looking for. He gets to an elite relative athletic score pretty much based solely on size. But other than that, merely good across the board. I mentioned him mainly because he meets the Packers threshold on size. Now, the exceptions. There are a couple I think we should talk about. I think there are four guys, in fact, that are worth mentioning here. So let's talk through them carefully. I think we have to mention Jackson, Jackson Smith and Jigba at Ohio State right off the board, or right off the bat. He is 13th on the consensus mock draft big board, but he's a little bit on the smaller side. Six feet tall and a half inch, 196 pounds, so just barely, just barely missing. 
I, if you want to get technical, you could bump down the Packers' weight threshold to 195 pounds. He technically make it, makes it. He's, he's real close. I think he's interesting because of how he produced at his very best. Wonderful production in 2021. Really his only notable season in college. 95 catches, 1,600 yards, nine touchdowns. That is plenty notable. I mean, there are guys that get talked about seriously at, at, as a receiver prospect in the NFL draft that don't have that for their career. And he had that in one single season. And he did it operating almost exclusively out of the slot. Like close to 80% of his snaps came in the slot. And more than 80% now that I look at the numbers. In 2021, nearly 88% of his snaps came in the slot. So I think the reasoning here is that you've got Watson on one side and Dobbs on the other. And if you can get Smith and Jigba, you've got a really solid slot receiver, which just complements Watson and Dobbs really well. Now, the red flag is that he's been hurt. He only played 60 snaps across five games in 2022 because of a hamstring injury. And he is borderline in terms of what the Packers are going through. The thinking also seems to be that he would have to fall to 15. You never know with these things because at this point in the draft, there have been like 60 guys that are supposed to be off the board that are definitely going to be off the board, that there's no way are going to make it to 15, uh, at, you know, just based on you know, various people's opinions. Who really knows? Smith and Jigba falling to 15 would be unusual. Yeah, it would be weird for the first receiver. Well, maybe somebody else goes ahead of him. But it'd be weird for the consensus top guy in the draft to not go until 15. But stranger things have happened. You, you really never know. Fun facts. How about some high school productivity? Smith and Jigba scored 82 touchdowns receiving in high school. Not too shabby. Let's talk about Jalen Hyatt. Another Tennessee prospect, a little bit of a funky offense, 38th on the consensus mock draft big board, and a small guy. Well, maybe not small, but slightly built. Six feet and one-eighth inch tall, 176 pounds, but he can run. 4-4, 40-yard dash, and is a weapon from the slot as well. Nearly 87% of his snaps in his final college season came from the slot. This is an interesting player not only because of what he did in college, but because the Packers seem quite high on him. Justice Mosqueda at Acme Packing Company has some sourced information suggesting the Packers are very high on Jalen Hyatt. Here's what he wrote, quote, I know I'm usually the one banging the, t- the table that the Packers have almost exclusively drafted and played 195-pound-plus receivers during the Matt LaFleur era, but Tennessee receiver Jalen Hyatt is an important name for Green Bay Packers fans to keep track of this offseason. Last draft cycle... Multiple sources told me that Ohio State's Chris Olave, 187 pounds, was of particular interest to the team. Down in Indianapolis last week, this this column is from back in February, by the way, multiple people told me that Hyatt is held in the same regard by the Packers scouts. Hopefully a team won't trade three top 120 picks to move up for Hyatt like the New Orleans Saints did for Olave last year, end quote. So what is the fit then? I think you're looking at Hyatt as another speedster across from Watson. Maybe a more slightly built version of Romeo Dobbs, sacrificing some bulk for speed, and he can run 4-4 flat is nothing to sneeze at. He does play in that funky Tennessee offense. Again, I don't know how much that bothers me. Christian Watson offense was more pro-style, but wasn't really an NFL offense in terms of sophistication. He did do some more NFL-type things. But Hyatt 
does seem like he can produce in a way that would be of interest to the Packers, and the Packers seem to be interested in Hyatt, an interesting data point to be sure. Fun fact for Hyatt, he signed an NIL deal with Hyatt Hotels, and I love the synergy there, which included a credit for each of his teammates for family members to attend the Orange Bowl. So using his name, image, and licensing stuff for good, in addition to making some money for himself. Not too shabby. Two really small guys stand out to me as maybe worth considering, and I think you'll understand why when we talk first and foremost about Marvin Mims out of Oklahoma. Now, he's a certified small. 5'10 and 7 eighths, so under 5'11, 183 pounds, but with a relative athletic score of 9.4, he clocks in at a 4'38 40-yard dash. If we're going to break some tendencies, let's really break some tendencies. He is small. He is fairly slightly built, but he can run. He's good after the catch. He's got some punt return ability too, which is never a bad thing. If you're looking to break tendencies, if you're looking to add a little bit something different into the offense, why not add something different that can really fly? And Mims can really fly. And he used those powers to great effect at Oklahoma, especially in 2022. More than 70% of his catches went for first downs in 2022. In a similar mold, after Mims at number 74 on the consensus mock draft big board, we find Tyler Scott out of Cincinnati at number 77. Now, Scott is a little bit smaller and a little bit lighter. Shade under 5'10", so 5'9 and 7'8", almost exactly, well, exactly an inch shorter than Mims. 177 pounds, so 6 pounds lighter. Runs a 4-4-4-40. So a little bit smaller, just a fraction slower, still plenty fast. I mentioned Scott because the Packers had a virtual meeting with him this pre-draft cycle. He played almost exclusively outside compared to Mims playing primarily on the inside, which I think is a reverse kind of versatility. Now, previously we've talked about guys that, you know, have played inside, maybe bigger guys, big slots that you could maybe move outside. What about a small guy you can move inside? I think it can only help a guy who is used to playing outside to move inside where it may be, a little bit more difficult to get your hands on him because you're lining up off the line of scrimmage. As a lot of two-way goes, can go left, right, or upfield. Maybe he adds to his skill set by, or adds to his ability to attack defenses by playing in a bit of a different role than he played in college. That seems like a fair projection to me. And again, noteworthy that the Packers met with him. He's a former high school running back, which makes sense at his size. And I guess to to kind of put a bow on both Scott and Mims, and maybe even Hyatt, I think we have to remember the extent to which the Packers went to try to add uh, Bo Melton to their roster last year. Now, Melton was a guy they were interested in in the pre-draft process, ended up not taking him in the seventh round last spring. But after the Seahawks released him, they added him, and Melton is a smaller guy, but he runs quite fast. He was in that 4-3 range of the 40-yard dash. I think the Packers, at least theoretically, are open to adding different body types to their receiver room. Maybe some of these exceptions to their historical tendencies make their way to Green Bay this year. Now, what are the Packers going to do? I think the Packers are going to take a receiver in this year's draft class. I don't think it's going to be in the first round. I would be, I think, surprised at this point if the Packers end up taking a receiver in the first round. I just don't think there are many guys that really make sense there 
in terms of what you're projecting and in terms of what else may be available later on in the draft. It's kind of like it's kind of like a guy like Michael Mayer in a lot of ways. Uh, we talked about Mayer as not necessarily being a bad player, but looking at his skill set, looking at the things that he offers, is that worth the 15th pick in the draft? I would tend to say no. That's kind of where I'm at with a couple of these top-end receivers. You know, you talk about Quentin Johnston. You talk about Jackson Smith and Jigba. Do you feel super comfortable taking those guys at 15? They're solid enough players, Smith and Jigba in particular, but... Shoot, I mean, are they really like game-breaking talents? Are you getting a lot of value there relative to what you might take at another position? I think that's a, a discussion that needs to be had if you're if you're considering taking a receiver at 15. It seems like the Packers can get guys that either fit what they have done historically or might be worthwhile tendency breakers later on in the draft. And I, I think they should try to be patient in this one as much as possible, let the board come to them. Maybe sooner or later it finally breaks well for them in terms of uh, receiver talent going their way. That's been the problem basically since they they traded up to get Jordan Love because there weren't any receivers that they liked on the board in that range. And that has kind of led us to this point. Maybe the receiver board finally breaks well for the Packers this year and they get some real value in the second or third round. Stranger things has happened. Ted Thompson made a lot of good things happen for the Packers by taking receivers in the second and third rounds. Maybe it's time for things to kind of work back toward that for the Packers. I would love to see it, and I'm sure Jordan Love would as well. That's all I've got for you in this episode. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.